The Federal Labor Relations Authority has agreed to review a challenge to an agency union the authority says is unprecedented. Normally, once a federal union is certified in an election supervised by the authority, no decertification vote can occur for at least a year. The question is, can a decertification vote take place within a year if the original certification occurred without a vote in the first place? We get more now from the president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation, Mark Mix. Mr. Mix, good to have you on. Tom, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you about this very interesting case. So in this case, there were already two bargaining units, and the petitioner was already in a union. And then AFGE decided to combine the two units into one new unit. And that is what she's challenging, that the new bargaining unit was not certified because there was no election. Is that basically the outlines of this case? Well, she's she's not I don't contesting the certification of the union and the consolidation. What she's contesting is her ability to try to have a decertification election. And, Tom, a decertification election means that the employees in the unit vote as to whether or not the union will continue to represent them in the workplace. In this case, the AFGE is the bargaining unit. They're local 446, and then the NAGE, they were two units that had these employees. And, you know, there's not been a contract agreement or a negotiation since 1988 for the AFGE and for 2000 for the NAGE. So there's no election process here. There's no certification bar. And what she wants is she wants the ability that she has secured the proper amount of signatures to actually trigger a deauthorization election. And what the regional director said was that deauthorization election was barred under the statute because it occurred within 12 months of the consolidation of these two units. And by the way, we are talking about the National Park Service employees in the Blue Ridge Parkway region. Yeah, that's correct, in the National Park System. That's right. Right. And just a clarification question, the regional director is almost the equivalent of an administrative law judge at the MSPB, Merit Systems Protection Board. They make the initial decision, and then if people don't like it, they can appeal to the authority itself. Yeah, that's correct. It's kind of like the National Labor Relations Board, too, in that regard, Tom. The National Labor Relations Board has regional offices with regional directors, and the case that's brought in front of the regional director is decided there in the region, and then the appellate process would come up to the full National Labor Relations Board in the private sector, and under the FLRA, it happens basically the same way here. And the analysis done by the board members, the three-member FLRA itself, says this is without precedent, and so that's why they're agreeing to take in briefs from both sides as to the merits here. Yeah. You know, the the statute is really clear about three bars, and when we say bars, these are bars to action that are written into the statute. And under Section 7111, there is there are three bars that are created that protect the union immediately after an election, after a contract is negotiated, and then these are protections that exist in the law. Interestingly enough, the consolidation of these two units occurs under a different section of the law, and that section of the law specifically does not have any of these bars created. So, you know, the board is going to look at this, and if you if you interpret the intent of Congress and the statutory language, they have to rule that these bars don't exist under this consolidation piece of the statute. It does exist. We, we don't contest the fact that it exists under the original Section 7111, which deals with the certification of unions as bargaining agents for workers. There's a 12-month bar to a decertification election. There's a bar, a contract bar to when the contract expires. That's all written in the statute. But if you look at the legal brief in this case, on behalf of Aaron Lamb and the, and the employees in this unit, you find that the section that the, the regional director used to block her ability to have a vote 
as to whether or not the union would continue as a representative. They went to a different section, and this language is not there. And when you find it, you find it in another section beyond it, which is kind of interesting. So the Congress looked at it in two different places. They applied it in two different places, but they didn't apply it here. So this is kind of the novel concept. And unfortunately, what we hope is that the federal, the federal Labor Relations Authority will look at it and say the clear intent of Congress was not to include it in this consolidation section, that it, these bars would not exist in a consolidation, and the, these employees would have the right to have this vote as to whether or not the union would continue to represent them in the workplace. Got it. We're speaking with Mark Mix. He's president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And just as an aside, do you think one of the issues is the fact that of the two consolidated units, one was non-professional and one was professional, nobody was managerial, but is there something of a culture clash in maybe the expectations from representation? Yeah, I think that's part of it, Tom. I, you know, when you start throwing these units together and then you start negotiating contracts that bind all employees and you have a different, uh, to use your word, culture between the members of the unit, that's when people, I think, begin to raise issues about it. You know, hey, I'm this or I'm that and we do this and we do that. And this other group of people that now have been consolidated with us do something completely different. And so it, I think it makes the negotiations a little bit more difficult, perhaps. But one of the things you think about is once the union is the exclusive bargaining agent for every single member of that unit, whether they voted for, voted, wanted the union, um, or voted no for a union, perhaps. In this case, there's been no election since, you know, going back to the 1980s and in the case of the FGE and in the case of the, uh, the other bargaining unit was 2000. So there's no there's no basic you know election or anything that's occurred other than the regional director saying you know the, the AFG petitioning for the consolidation the regional director agreeing to that and then these employees coming in and saying you know we want a chance to vote on this and frankly it's kind of interesting because the 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 decertification petition occurred in December of 20 of 21 and the RD ruled the regional director ruled in March of 22 that we denied the petition and and so she filed the petition after a September decision to bind to consolidate the two units and getting back to that issue of the fact that there had not been a vote on either union in at least 20 years and almost 30 years in one case what happens in the sense of employee turnover because probably no one that was there for the original vote back in the 80s even worked there anymore. So as people come in, they're automatically in the union, regardless of whether they personally voted for it. Yeah, that's correct, Tom. That's a great point. I mean, most of these unions in the federal government and interesting enough in the private sector as well are what we call legacy unions. I mean, they've been there for 30 or 40 or 50 years in some cases. And so there's never been an election. Now, there's been renegotiations of contracts that just to go back to Section 7111 of the statute, it says once a contract is negotiated, there's a bar for when you can decertify. It's called a contract bar. That's in the statute. But there's been no election here. This was a consolidation without any election, without any opportunity for the employees to voice their opinion about the consolidation and and then have to deal with it and then being blocked when they tried to exercise their voice. But you're right. We think statistics show that only really about maybe less than 10 percent of all union members have ever voted on the contract to certify a union. And that's that's a private area, a private sector statistic. Uh, but in the public sector, I suspect it's the same. And the certification vote versus voting on a contract negotiation, different dates here, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So it, most of our experience is with the private sector. So what happens in the private sector is that when a contract is agreed to, 
employees are barred for up to three years from trying to decertify a union after a contract has been negotiated. We have numerous cases on behalf of thousands and thousands of employees across the country where they, you know, a contract is negotiated. In fact, we have one contract right now with the United Steelworkers, a case up in Pennsylvania, where the union put a tentative agreement in front of the workers. They voted it down once, and they voted it down a second time, but yet the union officials agreed to it because they wanted to start the contract bar to stop the employees from a decertification effort that was occurring in the workplace. So the employees voted down the contract twice, but the union approved it unilaterally, and they, they approved it unilaterally so they could get the contract bar triggered so the vote couldn't occur for three years. That's kind of the way this works, and when you look at it from the employee perspective, you think, why wouldn't the union want the employees to vote? I mean, this is what they, they claim to represent these employees, and when the employees qualify getting the requisite number of signatures to trigger a decertification the union comes in and says oh no 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 no, you can't do that we're arguing you can't do that because you know we have this contract bar we have an election bar or we have some bar that blocks employees from exercising their rights i think the safest thing to do is allow the workers to vote by secret ballot election and let the unions future survive on the employees they claim to represent whether they vote yes or no and that's really the solution here we hope the flra will look at this and at least allow the election to go forward because the union may win the election, and if they do, more power to them, and that would trigger the next bar for so it couldn't happen sure. again for 12 months. That's what's going on here. So we hope the board looks at it, and they look at the intent of Congress, and they look at the statutory language as it appears ink on paper as opposed to trying to add anything to it or subtract anything from it. And if they do, we're pretty confident that they got let this election proceed. In your experience with the FLRA, do their decisions generally hold? Because in some cases, even these administrative bodies of the federal government get challenged in a higher court, in an actual federal court. Yeah. You know, and going back to kind of uh, where we are with the National Labor Relations Board, I mean, the National Labor Relations Board decides, and there are certain cases that can go to the federal court for, um, you know, another appeal. There are certain cases at the NLRB that can't go forward, that the NLRB has sole jurisdiction, like for an election case, for example, you can't go up to the federal court. Under the FLRA, I'm, I guess we'll see what the, what the, uh, the FLRA rules in this case because, as you mentioned in the intro, it's kind of a novel concept. There's, this is really kind of, you know, a, a clean sheet of paper as it relates to the issue in front of them. It's not a clean sheet of paper as it relates to the statutory language. It's pretty clear. If you look at the briefs in this case, the, the, the election bars that are created in the statute are in one section of the law. The consolidation situation is under a completely different section, and those bars don't exist there. So we hope that the federal government won't apply the bars to the consolidation process, because if they do – Think about that. I mean, they could start consolidating any unit they want, and the, the employees would really have no say about that. And that's a real problem for employee rights. Mark Mix is president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. Thanks for joining me. Tom, thank you. It's a privilege to be on with you. I appreciate the opportunity. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined 
by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology, and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for 
taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, 
you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right? And diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate. And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it. Whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave, and here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.